Good morning, everyone. A very happy Easter to you all. This is such a great joy to be sharing this part of our morning together, a day of real celebration. Uh, I'm Jill, and I'm going to be sharing a message with you this morning. We've had baptisms, we've had birdsong. I don't know if it can get any better than that. But I do have one thing for you. I have an Easter brain teaser for you. You ready? What do you call a conversation with God that you don't even know you're having? You want the answer? A divine exchange. (laughs) And yes, all the little jokes will be as bad as that one. But don't worry, there's not too many of them. Do you know the kind of conversations I mean, though, where you just think you're having your own train of thought, but all the while, God is listening, and he's navigating things to get you to that one exact question that he is very eager to answer. Let me explain. Well, I had been thinking about the resurrection accounts, particularly around Mary Magdalene, like the ones that we had just read out for us. And two questions in the text really stood out to me as I was reflecting on them. The first is the one in the Luke account, spoken by the angel to Mary. And it's this one here. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Well, that's darkly ironic, isn't it? I mean, Mary had not come to look for the living. She'd come to find a corpse, and that is a dead person. She had good reason for that. Then we hop over to the John account, and again, a strange question asked by the angels to Mary. Why are you crying? Well, surely that's fairly obvious. She's come to tend to a dearly departed one who's now missing. She's got good reason for tears. Hmm, yes, okay. I see what's going on here. The angels are trying to shift Mary's focus, shift her emotions away from expecting to find a dead person to finding a living person instead a living Jesus. He'd said he must rise on the third day. They had good reason for that. Well, I began to reason with myself and think, Mary was looking among the dead, but she could have been looking among the living instead. Focusing on dead things, Yeah, that was tearing Mary apart. Focusing on dead things, mm, that's not good. By now I knew God had an agenda in this conversation, so I brought him in. Well, God, what is your point here, though? I mean, no one surely focuses on dead things. I mean, unless you're into zombies or forensics, maybe. No one focuses on dead things. Ugh! I wouldn't want to focus on dead things. I don't focus on dead things. 
Well, I don't think I do, do I? Father, would you show me where I'm focusing on any dead things? Boom, there it is. The question he was waiting for me to ask him, which he was very eager to answer. Where am I focusing on any dead things? And he wasted no time in giving me his answer. This is what I believe I heard him say. It spoke volumes to me. I really hope it says something to you too. This is what I believe he said. When you focus on absence, lack, and limitation, you are focusing in the realm of dead things. And so you miss me and my resurrection life. Death is the most extreme form of absence, the ultimate form of limitation. When you focus on what you don't have, what you haven't seen, what hasn't happened, what I haven't done, you join your thoughts to lifeless things. And I become veiled from your sight, unrecognizable to you. I did not come for you to have death, but life, the fullest possible life, my life, to join you inseparably to my very own life. I am not lack, but perfect fullness. I do not want my children to be absence-minded, but fullness-minded in me. And he began to show me more of what he meant through different characters in the resurrection account, staying first with Mary Magdalene, because, oh, Mary, it was tough enough for her coming to the tomb expecting to find deceased Jesus. But things were getting worse now because not, not only has he died, but he now appears to be missing. She's lost not only all prospect of him ever actively participating in her life again, but now any form of him being present, being near her, is gone. Mary's world is plunged into absence. And the awful reality of that sends her into a panic. She's frantically trying to find out who took Jesus away. Was it, was it tomb raiders? Was it the Romans? Was it these angels? Was it this gardener? And how is she ever going to get him back? Mary is a million miles away from being able to see Jesus. We who are on the other side of the resurrection story, we know it's all going to be okay for Mary. But while she's still there, in that dark tomb, there might be things that Mary can help us understand about our own absence-mindedness and how we can move away from it. Let's take a look. Today, it's a celebration day. We're celebrating Jesus is alive. We're believers. We believe that. But 
Aren't there those situations of our own that we can come to expecting to find a dead Jesus? Oh, we might not even know we have that expectation, and we certainly use vocabulary that makes it sound like we believe that he's alive. But on the inside, there's a different narrative, there's a different perspective at play. For example, we say, he's God of the impossible. But not in that situation, not with this relationship, not with that part of my life. He can't change that. That's dead Jesus. Our God answers prayer, but not mine. He's obviously got way more important things to care about than my little life. That's dead Jesus. The Lord is in control. But why would he intervene when so many people have just turned their backs on him? That's dead Jesus. He never leaves us or forsakes us. But of course, he's absent to me. Well, that's hardly surprising. What with my circumstances, my background? That's dead Jesus. We're all called to walk in power. But Jesus isn't going to use someone like me to perform his miracles. That's dead Jesus. Powerless, uncaring, absent, limited, exclusive. When we think of him like that, he may as well be dead. We need a divine exchange. We need a different Jesus. We need a better Jesus. We need the risen Jesus, just like Mary did. And just in case we're thinking, oh, it was so much easier for Mary. She was physically there, right there, when Jesus was raised from the dead. Let's just remember that when Mary exits the tomb and she's standing right there in the very presence of the risen Jesus, she doesn't even recognize him. She fails to see Jesus standing right there the whole time. Mary is still so focused on his deathly absence that she allows the presenting circumstances, the, her grasp of reality, to so overwhelm her, so dominate her, she's blind to Jesus and to his promises. Because he had promised multiple times to Mary and all of the other followers, yes, I will die, yes, you will weep and mourn for me, but on the third day, I will rise again. He'd promised that. Mary had forgotten that promise. Did you notice how Jesus asked Mary the exact same question as the, as the angels had asked her? Why are you crying? I don't believe this is Jesus just saying, Mary, you don't need to cry anymore. Look, I'm here. I believe Jesus in his love is actually reminding Mary and also gently challenging her. Mary, you knew my promises. 
You knew that I must rise again on the third day. This is the third day. When you came to the tomb today, you had every reason not to cry, not to be sad, but to be glad, to be celebrating, anticipating that you would see me risen again. Mary, exercise your faith. Put your belief to work, knowing that I am faithful to all my promises, and I truly am the risen Jesus. But Mary got there in the end, didn't she? She did believe what happened. It was a process. Give Mary grace in that. Jesus did. We need it too. Just as Mary arrived in the physical dark of the pre-dawn morning, but she left as the light, the glimmers of dawn, were brightly visible. So she went from darkened understanding, darkened sight, being unable to see Jesus in the tomb, to having bright, clear-eyed revelation and recognition of him. She went through a process. Let's see if we can learn something from her process to help us in ours. First of all, Mary had to turn and go looking in a different place. She was looking in the tomb among the dead. She had to come out into the garden. In order to see Jesus, she literally had to leave one place and go to another. For us, this is symbolic. This is representative for us and our thinking that we need to turn and look in a completely di different direction in terms of how we see Jesus. Come out of that dark tomb, that place of absence thinking of, I don't have, I haven't seen, it hasn't happened, it's not there. Come out of that place, that's tomb thinking, and come out into the garden where the light of truth makes love and hope and faith flourish. Ah, yes, he truly is alive. That is repentance, metanoia. Change your mind in a completely different direction so that your life may follow. Come out of the tomb, no more absence thinking. Come into the garden and remember his risen life. Secondly, stay reminded of his promises. Oh, look at the distress that Mary came into when she abandoned promise, when she forgot Jesus' promise. She was in great distress. Mary had a specific promise that Jesus would rise again on the third day. Friend, are you walking through something, even now, that's difficult, that's challenging? Maybe you've been in a long season of that. Do you have a specific promise from God that you are holding on to? If you don't, can I encourage you to go looking until you find one? In this, his living word, keep looking and don't stop until the Spirit of God in you prompts you, nudges you, makes you aware this is your promise. It doesn't have to be long, it doesn't have to be complicated. Some of the most powerful promises are those that talk of God strengthening us, sustaining us, who he wants to be to us. For me, a promise I've been standing on a good long while now, 
is one that it's in the Bible, but he gave it to me in a format that he knew I would get. And it's very simple. I've needed this a lot. Here it is, Easter themed. I am an earth. That's how he said it to me. I am enough. I am enough for you. In all ways, I am enough. And I've had to stand on that again and again. Do you see how Father was processing me from absence to enoughness? Oh, and onto fullness. That's coming soon. Then when we have our promise, put it in a place where you can see it every day. Mine's in my study on that, that picture board. And then give God time. Give him time to work out those promises in our life. He's not a microwave God. It's not boom, press, ping. It's often by faith and patience we inherit his promises. It can take a long time time sometimes and our faith in that long time of waiting is unspeakably precious to God hold fast to his promises and dare we even celebrate in advance of seeing them happen that's what Jesus wanted for Mary I believe it's what he wants for us too and finally Oh, let him speak your name. It was when Mary heard Jesus speak her name that she recognized who was standing in front of her. One word, her name. When Jesus speaks our name, when we give him time, space, stillness to do that, it can just cut through all the chaos, all the noise, all the other voices bombarding us. And in that moment, just remind us, he sees me, he knows me, he's here, he's risen. He's the good shepherd. He will only ever speak your name in exactly the way that you need to hear him say it. It will never be with fear. It will never be to crush you, humiliate you, diminish you. It will be to lift you and build you and assure you of his perfect love just as it was for Mary. Well, meantime, Mary was not the only one struggling with absence-mindedness. Can we watch this little video together? Let's go to the movies. I'll tell a story and remember it like it yesterday. You don't even Oh. 
walk on the road to Emmaus. And we're walking and talking. Talking and walking. Then all of a sudden, this man comes up behind us. Yes, I remember. He looked at us and he said, um, he said, why the long faces? And I looked at him and I said, that's just how we're made. We can't help it. And if you do not like it... The man was speaking metaphorically. Well, I needed him just to be clear. He wasn't clear. We said to him... Uh, oh, well, I said to him, I said, are you the only person in Jerusalem that hasn't heard just what has happened? Right, and I said yeah. to him, uh, Jesus had been crucified, we placed him in the tomb, now we can't find his body. And I went on to say we were just horribly disappointed because we thought Jesus was the one. And he says, uh, why are your head so thick. Why, why are your heart so slow? And I looked at him right in the eye and I said, we're just getting older. We cannot help it. There's nothing we the can... The man was speaking metaphorically. I just needed him to be clear. Then he looked at us and he started at the beginning with the books of Moses and all through the prophets and explain to us how the scriptures said this would happen to the Messiah. It was wonderful. <laughs> it was amazing. We came to a fork in the road. Just to be clear, it wasn't a literal fork. We came to a spot where the road divided mm -hmm. and I invited him to join us for dinner. I think he said yes because I told him my wife was making a cobbler. She makes a great cobbler. That woman can cobble. So we get here and we sit down for dinner. And he blessed the meal and he broke the bread. And then... I looked at you. And I looked at you. And we knew... Our hearts, they were burning inside of us. We were sitting with the Messiah. We, we were sitting at the table with the risen Savior. And then both of us, we, um, we turned to face him and, um, he was gone. remember what I had for lunch, but I'll never forget that story. Tell that story. Well, aren't you a regular Bobby Fisher? <laughs> king me. Not going to king you. King me. Not going to king you. No, king me. No, king. That's a good story. I'm not going to tell that story. Add that no. one to your book. That's a good story. What, the story of an old man who cheats at checkers to feel better about himself? You're not clarifying that at all. I just won. Look at right there. That's oh, a yeah. winner right there. That's a good story. That oh. would be the title of the book, The Winner. You are a winner. I am a winner. Look I'm what... speaking metaphorically. Why don't you keep you me? You would not And you can find that actual story in the book of Luke, chapter 24, minus the game of checkers and some other artistic interpretations. We don't, for instance, 
actually know whether it was two male disciples on the road to Emmaus. We know that one of them definitely was, Clopas, he's mentioned in the Bible. Was the other one perhaps his wife? We don't know. But we do know something, that both those travelers, they walked the boulevard of broken dreams that day. Oh, they had such high hopes of Jesus. They had thought, verse 21, he was the one to redeem Israel from her enemies. But those hopes had turned to more dust than was filling their sandals. They are disillusioned, disappointed, hurt, upset. And isn't it so easy when hope goes like that for cynicism to creep in? Oh, we thought he was the one, but he's dead now. We may as well just pack up and go home. Have you ever felt like that? I know I have. They were so focused on absence, on what Jesus hadn't done, on who he hadn't proved to be for them, that they are held back from seeing Jesus. Even though they walk with him mile after mile, they do not recognize Jesus either. They are absence-minded, focused on what they don't yet see or have. But the penny did drop for them, too, eventually. And might there be things in their story that can help us in those times when we're facing hopelessness, disappointment, disillusionment? Let's see what they can help us. Don't they show us that it's so okay to pour out your hurt, your disappointment, your disillusionment to Jesus, even if that disappointment is with Jesus himself. And Jesus will meet us there. He'll come near us there and journey with us in that place of disappointment. The Emmaus too did that. But they also allowed Jesus to pour out his heart to them, to let him explain who he really is, what his real identity is, because they had a very limited idea of who Jesus really was. They saw him as a prophet, great in word and deed, and one who might redeem Israel from her enemies, but they didn't yet see him as the Christ, the risen one, the Messiah, who'd come to redeem them from a far more powerful enemy than Rome, from sin and death, so they could enjoy fullness of life, now as well as eternally. Secondly, they show us that the purpose of scripture, of this word, is not to give us holy head knowledge, but to give us holy heartburn to move our spirit until it comes into flame, it flickers into life, and we know this is Jesus, the risen one, speaking through the words of this living book. The Emmaus guys did that. You know, 
Their minds were still messed up and confused, but their spirit was getting something. It was coming alive to something that they weren't yet understanding. Remember they said we, we felt it burn in our hearts. They were coming alive to something that Jesus was sharing through the scripture. Will we let scripture do that? Instead of being a dry book with lots of text, how about we read it and we don't stop reading it until we get to that place where that little spark just comes into life. There's something there and then we allow the Holy Spirit to fan it into flame and to come into that burning of revelation that he wants to give us. Don't stop reading. Even if your scripture portion is yay long, keep going, keep going, keep going until that spark is lit and the holy fire of his spirit burns it into our revelation understanding. And finally, remember to break bread. It was when Jesus broke the bread at the meal that the Emmaus too recognized who he was. This do in remembrance of me. We did it, didn't we, on Good Friday. We broke bread in remembrance of Jesus. If ever we need a memory jogger away from absence into fullness, here it is. In this special act, Jesus is saying, my body was broken, I suffered, I died, I went away. I embraced absence to its very limit, even to death. But I didn't stay there. I beat death. I conquered sin. And I brought you through with me into newness of life so that you could embrace all the fullness that is in me. So now I'm your living bread, I'm nurturing, I'm providing, I'm sustaining every aspect of your being. And you are in me, the vine. I am the life of God in you. You share my life now. All who have received me, you share the very life of God. That is eternal life. It's not something we're going for in heaven when we die. We have it now, the very life of God. Paul picks it up in his letter to the Colossians. All the fullness of God's being dwells bodily in Christ. And you, 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 if you have received him, you've been brought to fullness in him. That exact fullness that is in Christ Jesus dwells in your spirit if you have received him. Do you believe that? That same fullness, that same power is in all who have received him. Was Jesus ever going to resolve things the way the Emmaus pair had hoped or expected? No. No, he wasn't. The outcomes of Jesus don't always look like we would hope or expect them to. But there on the road, Jesus gave the Emmaus travelers something way beyond their expectations. He gave them a brand new destination. Not Emmaus, not a Rome-free Jerusalem, not even heaven. Him. Him, Jesus, he is the destination and the life 
that they are longing for, that their being is craving. They're tasting it. It's delicious. They are mesmerized. They are appetized to want it, even though their heads don't yet understand it and they don't recognize that they're with Jesus. They are tasting that risen life, that eternal life. And it's so beautiful that they are begging him, don't go. No, no, Jesus, you must stay with us. Please come, come have dinner with us. They think they are feeding a stranger all the while. He is satisfying the very longings of their being because that's what we're made for. We're designed to be satisfied by the fullness that is in him. I'm gonna finish on one final wonderful thing that Mary and the Emmaus too have in common. Once they focus on the risen Jesus and they feast on him, they forget their heartache. They forget their disappointment. And do you know what they do? They run. They run. They run to tell others what they know. This is huge. Think of Mary. She's a woman in a world where women have very little influence in that time. Where a woman's testimony it was considered worthless. Yet Jesus doesn't consider her worthless or inadequate or powerless. He says, Mary, I commission you. You go, girl. You run and tell others what you know. And she runs. The Emmaus too already walked seven long, draining, emotional miles to Emmaus. But once they feast on the fullness of the risen Jesus, what do they do? They run all the way back to Jerusalem in the dark, seven more miles, to tell others what they know. Jesus is alive. This so encourages me because it shows me that when I feast on him, when I allow him to be the fullness, feeding and nurturing me, I don't get I don't get passive, I don't get bloated, I don't get self-centered, I get energized, I get revitalized to go, as it were, and run and tell others and release to others the fullness that is in me through the risen Christ. Whether it's on one of those lackluster days, you know the ones where you just feel meh? On those kind of days where the joyfulness that is in him who lives in me can be mine, or whether I'm in a tricky meeting and I don't, don't really know how to handle it, where the wisdomfulness of the one who lives in me can be mine, or where there's someone who needs healing standing in front of me, they're sick, they're in pain, and I just don't feel like I'm in the zone to do that. The empowering fullness of the one who lives in me, I can draw on that fullness. And all around the world, right now, in war-torn zones or flood-ravaged zones, people hiding in bunkers, in basements, in temporary shelters, they are drawing, drawing on the boldfulness, on the worshipfulness that is in the risen one, and they are worshiping him, even right now. Hallelujah. Aren't you so glad? There's no more begging Jesus. Come and stay with us, Jesus. Oh, you mustn't leave. Please don't. Those days are over. Once we receive him, 
Once we invite him in to be our fullness, he's a permanent resident. He never leaves us. This is Christ, the risen one. Not just Christ with us, not even just Christ for us, as good as that is. Friends, this is Christ in us, the hope of glory, the firm expectation of glory. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Oh, will we praise his wonderful, glorious, risen, anointed, and celebrated name. Will you praise his name with me? Hallelujah, he is risen. Thank you, Jesus. You are the risen one and you are our fullness. Praise your name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen.